postmodern and post-Christian are both terms that the, the church seriously needs to retire. We're going to the world to tell them who we are and we're not going to the world to present who God is. A world in which so much is focused on building walls and keeping people out. An alternative way to live is to live by... It's almost like raising up a white flag and saying, Ah! It's all the secular people's fault that no one's listening or coming to our evangelistic campaign. How can we redesign Adventism to be effective at reaching emerging Western culture? That's what the Story Church podcast is all about. Adventism Redesigned. Hey, what's up, everyone? It's Pastor Marcus here. I want to welcome you back to another episode of the Story Church Podcast. It's a new week, a new blog, a new podcast episode. And uh, look, before I start, I I just want to thank uh, everyone who is listening to this episode and uh, who tunes in every week as well. You guys look, to be honest, it's huge. You know, when, when I see um, messages that come through of people who are really being blessed and inspired and challenged by what uh, what they're hearing um, and people who write with questions and all that sort of stuff, it, it's awesome because it lets me know that uh, the message is connecting, right? It's, it's connecting, it's inspiring people out there. And um, yeah, I do this, like I've said in, in previous podcasts, I do it on my free time. Uh, so it's just really, really cool. So never ever feel sort of like embarrassed or ashamed um, to hit a like, to share, um, or just to write or comment or something and uh, let me know how the podcasts and the blogs and the books or whatever are inspiring you because it kind of, you know, kind of inspires me too. I also want to take a moment to thank all of my patrons um, at the uh, for the Story Church podcast, the Story Church project as a whole. Thank you guys for what you do. Uh, it's really, really, really helpful to have patrons because I'm able to do so much more with the project. And believe you me, guys, I have an incredible amount of plans with this. But obviously, you know, I am a full-time pastor and uh, my first um, responsibility is to make sure that my churches are healthy and uh, that they're being taken care of. And I'm also going to be planning a church in the near future, God willing, as, as things progress. Um, so, you know, I got a lot of stuff going on, got a family too, which is, uh, you know, a lot of time that, um, I don't have. And so that kind of, you know, limits how quickly I can develop things and do new things with the project. However, um, keep in mind that there are a lot of really cool ideas that I'm going to be working on in the future. So if they don't come out super fast, please don't be discouraged or, or, or think, Hey, um, he has forgotten about the cool projects he promised. I haven't. I'm just waiting for the opportune moments to be able to dive in and uh, and take care of those things. So, uh, but again, thank you to everyone who listens and to everyone who um, messages and to the patrons. And if, if you want to be a patron, you can just go to the um, patreon.com slash the story church project and all the details are there. It's really simple. It'll take you like a minute to read. And uh, yeah, if you want to be a patron and help the project um, move into um, wider spaces, then I would absolutely love that. So thank you guys. Now today, um, I want to talk about the three big lies most Adventists believe about church. All right, three big lies most Adventists believe about church. Now, of course, this is coming from a pastoral perspective. Um, I've been an Adventist pastor now into five years, but I've been an Adventist all my life. I've grown up in the church. And as uh, anyone who follows this project knows, I love being Adventist. Adventism is the bomb. It's so cool. Uh, I just, yeah, I, I feel pretty um, privileged or thankful, I guess, to be a part of this tribe. And um, 
So yeah, it's just it's just amazing. Uh, and and but with that obviously comes you know the challenge of of seeing some of the things that we can do that are um, not the smartest or the healthiest when it comes to the mission that God has given us. Things that kind of get in the way or or block us from from really 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 doing the mission God has given us. And what I want to talk about today are, are three lies that I've seen all my life growing up in church. Three things that Adventists tend to believe that um, it's not just that they're not true, it's that they damage our ability to do mission. Um, so with that said, I, I guess I can, I can confidently assert that most church members today uh, actually have no idea what church is in the Bible. I'm talking about, you know, my, my tribe, Adventism. Uh, this may be true of other denominations, but um, in my experience, most church members in the Adventist church have no idea what church is in the Bible. And we can see the effects all around us, right? We, we can see Adventist churches are dying, they're splitting, they're barely functioning. At and for a while, I used to believe that the problem was, ah, people are just lazy, you know? Um... They just need to get serious and, I don't know, you know, get committed. Easy to say, huh? Uh, but lately, I, I've actually been thinking that maybe the problem begins with the fact that most of us have no idea what church really is. So I want to focus on that today. Now, look, I'm not going to lie. I think this podcast today is going to make some of you really uncomfortable. <laughs> uh, so, but here's the thing. Before you send me that angry email... Make sure you read everything I got to say because I have a feeling that you might be a little less angry if, if you go through the whole thing um, or listen to the whole thing um, just a little. So give it a go. Um, so today what I want to do is I want to look at three popular lies about church most people um, in our faith tribe have not only fallen for, but they're also lies that we tend to really like. So these are, these are kind of hard to poke at because, you know, people are like, hey, I like that lie. But they are lies nonetheless, right? So I want to weigh them up against scripture and see what we discover. So here we go. Lie number one. The church is a sacred building. Now, one of my favorite verses in all the scripture is Exodus 25.8. This is where God says to the nation of Israel, have them make a sanctuary for me and I will dwell among them. So God has set his people free from slavery, if you're familiar with the story. And as they journey through the desert, he instructs them to build a sanctuary. And the reason is simple, that I may dwell among them. Now, this isn't the first time this idea is seen in scripture. If we go all the way back to the book of Genesis, we see God personally designing humanity out of the dust of the ground. And as God finishes his design, the Bible says that he breathes into man's nostrils the breath of life. There's something special taking place here. There's this inanimate biological entity laying on the ground and the creator leans in and breathes. And man, the Bible says, becomes a living being. Now, it's, it's crazy because like the rest of creation, God just spoke it into existence. and He could have done the same thing with man, but instead he gets personal. And it's as if God is saying... I like to be with people. I just, this, I'm, I'm making this special creation. There's something about this one that's, that's really special. Now, you fast forward to Genesis chapter 3, verses 8 and 9, and here, you know, man rebels against God, and God's response is amazing, right? You read in the text. I'm going to read the text for you. It says, Then man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden. What is he doing walking in the garden? Well, and you get the insinuation that he did this often because he liked to hang out with Adam and Eve. So he's walking in the garden in the cool of the day and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, where are you? 
Now, do I really need to comment on how cool it is that in their moment of rebellion, God seeks man out, right? It's as if God is saying, I know what you've done, but I love you and I still like to be with you. So please tell me where you are. I mean, that's just amazing. And as the narrative unfolds, we're introduced to this tragic plot twist that sin now separates us from God who likes to be with us. So you fast forward to Exodus 25 where we started off and God calls a nation of slaves to keep his story alive on the earth and then tells them, make me a sanctuary so that I can dwell among you. Why? Because God likes to be with people. And you fast forward to the New Testament and speaking of Jesus, an angel says, look, this is Matthew 1.23, by the way, look, the virgin will conceive a child. She will give birth to a son and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God is with us. Now, why God with us? Because God likes to be with people, right? You see this in John chapter 1, verse 14 as well, where it's like, and you know, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Now, you fast forward to the death of Jesus and the curtain in the temple, which represented our separation from God, is removed. At that moment, Matthew writes in chapter 27, verse 51, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. At this moment, heaven is shouting to humanity, the separation is ended. Jesus is the sacrifice that reconnects us to the Father. In him, we are reconnected. Now, Paul adds this in Hebrews chapter 10, verses um, 19 through 22. Uh, he, he adds this, Therefore, we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened for us through the curtain. I mean, isn't that cool? He's opened his way for us through the curtain. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God. Why? because God likes to be with people. Now, I want you to notice how the story ends in Revelation chapter 21, verses 1 to 3. This is how the story ends. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people. <laughs> and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. Now, for those of us who have a, you know, sort of basic understanding of the way Hebrews wrote scripture, we understand that, you know, they didn't have bold and underlined and exclamation points. When they wanted to emphasize something, they repeated it three times in this text. It's repeated, God is with people. But it's not just this text that repeats that. It's repeated all throughout scripture that God wants to be with people. Why? Because God likes to be with people. And, and all throughout scripture, he's working to close the gap, to draw near and end the separation. And what we see is that in the Old Testament, he closed that gap via the sanctuary, which served as a symbol of God's desire to be with people. But after the death of Jesus, something amazing happens. The temple, the sanctuary, the earthly one, is no longer the place where God meets with man. Instead, look at what Paul says to the church. This is amazing. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16. Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in your midst? Now, here's the thing. Paul 
is not saying, don't you know that your church building is now God's new temple and that God's spirit dwells inside of it? No, he's not talking about a church building because nowhere in the New Testament did you ever find any reference to the church as being a building. Instead, Paul is talking about the people. Because in scripture, the church is not a building, it is people. God dwells in us, not in a building. And the beauty of church being a people is that instead of going to church, the New Testament teaches that we are the church. This means that while the temple was the place where God dwelled with people in the Old Testament, in the New Testament, the people are the place where God dwells. In short, you are God's temple. Individually and collectively, God dwells with humanity through us, flesh and bone. But somehow, we've bought into this big lie that church is a building. And that big lie results in three tragic outcomes. First, people begin to think of a church building as a sacred space where you have to behave extra well. But when they aren't in the building... It's a little different, right? So we go from the New Testament model of a sacred people to this lie of a sacred building. And I do this sometimes, right? Let me give you guys a a practical, like, example. It's a Sabbath morning. I'm stressed. My kids haven't been listening. I've lost my composure. I'm not being a loving and kind father and I'm yelling and I'm frustrated and I'm annoyed and we're driving to church and, you know, I'm giving the kids a lecture and, you know, not, not being Christ-like at all, just frustrated, letting, letting my emotions get the best of me. And then we get to church and it's like the flip, you, like, the, like the switch just flips and, and all of a sudden, it's like, oh, we're at church now. Everybody put your smiles on. <laughs> and, and, and everybody, you know, let's, let's behave. Let's be reverent in the house of God, right? Now, we all do this. We all do this. We, we live this divided life where we can be one person out there. And the moment we walk into the church building, it's like Dr. Jekyll turns back into Mr. Hyde. And here's the point, guys. Like, this is not biblical, like, at all. The church building doesn't even exist in the New Testament. And we treat it as some super holy space where you can't do X, Y, and Z. And then we leave the building and it's like, phew, I'm not in God's presence anymore. So, so now I can gossip, right? And... <laughs> and do whatever else. Now, where do we read this in Scripture? Like, we don't. In Scripture, we are the church, right? So let me, let me, let me make two more points about this problem with church being a building. Uh, because of this idea, um, and, and we compartmentalize God's presence in our lives where somehow he's extra present in the church building than he is in, you know, in the kitchen in the morning where we're frustrated. Um, because of this, people, and and I'm talking about church people, no longer live in the presence of God on a daily basis. It's like he's only there in the building. He's confined to that space. Even though the book of Acts very clearly says, chapter 17, that God does not dwell in buildings made by human hands. But we live as though he's compartmentalized or contained there. And so people are no longer living in the presence of God always, but it's like they split his presence in their lives. Like when we're in the church building, 
you know, let's be extra good and let's everybody, you know, let's all the kids behave. And I've seen this, man. I've seen this growing up. The church I grew up in used to have this competition about family, you know, who's the great, who's the best family in the church. And, you know, and it's like they, they gave the awards to the, the most behaved family with the, you know, all, it was all these categories. And, um, and it was crazy because some years, you know, like the family that would win the award, it's like, yeah, they behaved really good in church, but all of us knew them and we'd be like, yeah, but they're not like that at home you know <laughs> like they they treat each other quite badly um so we compartmentalize god's presence to a man-made structure which is not biblical and and finally people lose sight that they are the church and so everything god-centered gets relegated to the building and its services and today many christians many adventist christians think that church is a building and they don't realize that they are the church every day and everywhere god dwells with man through them not buildings. I'm going to go to line number two. Line number two that most Adventists I have found believe today is that the center of church is the main service. Now, here's the thing. The sanctuary reveals that God likes to be with people. Like, that's the revelation of the sanctuary, right? If you never understand all the ins and outs of the sanctuary, don't worry about it. So long as you get that, that's the bottom line, right? God likes to be with people. And what this demonstrates is that the center of scripture is that God is relational and wants to be in relationship with people. And when the early church gathered under this idea, they ate together, read the word of God together, and celebrated the Last Supper together. Now imagine, I mean, just think about it. The Last Supper is, you know, the communion in which we commune, hello, uh, with God and celebrate our union, hello, uh, with him. It's about being together. Why? Because God likes to be with people. And so Luke records in the book of Acts, right? Chapter 2, verse 46 to 47. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. It's not, it's not saying that they were using the temple as a place of, you know, of, of um, like we use our modern day church. They just, they met in the courts because it was a common place where people met in, in that society. Um, and then he continues. He said, look, they broke bread in their homes. Now that phrase, break bread, often refers to the communion service, right? The Last Supper. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. And in Acts, um, verse 42, is just a few ver verses before. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, and to the fellowship, right, the being together, and to the breaking of bread, the communion, and to prayer. So in the New Testament, there was no such thing as a church service. The central aspect of a church gathering in the New Testament was actually communion, in which we celebrate the end of separation from God and the sanctuary nature of God. Now why? Ah, because God likes to be with people. But what is church today? I love how Francis Chan captured it. It's a little bit cynical, but I think, I think it makes the point really well. Um, Francis Chan says this, church today has become predictable. You go to a building, someone gives you a bulletin, you sit in a chair, you sing a few songs, a guy delivers maybe a polished message, maybe not. Someone sings a solo, you go home. Is this all God intended for us? Now let me frame it this way. Where in the New Testament do you find instructions on when the church should meet or how many songs to sing or whether there should be a platform party at the front or not or whether we should sit in rows or tables? Where in the New Testament do we see people stressed out with questions like, is the program running smooth? Is the song service running too long? Have the details been organized well? Is the bulletin accurate? Did we miss an announcement? Was the special item good? Was the preacher inspiring? You don't see that anywhere in the New Testament at all. Now, I'm not saying that any of that is like inherently bad. I, I, I think it's good to be organized, right? It's, it's biblical to be organized. 
The problem is that we spend all of our energy doing what God has never spoken about, and we have little time to do what he has spoken about. In fact, I've been to churches where they haven't reached a soul for like 10 years, right? And that's kind of like something God commanded us to do, to reach people. Um, and nobody seems fussed. It's like, yeah, we haven't reached anyone for a long time, but yeah, you know, whatever. It's not a big deal. Um, but you touch one detail in the program, and it's an all-out war. Right? It's like, yes, we will die for what God has not spoken about while ignoring the clear commands he has given us. I think this is a classic example of Jesus when he said, you guys teach for doctrines the commandments of men. Our church program is, is not in the New Testament. You know, and, and, and I'm not saying we shouldn't have a church program, but if that takes all of your energy and all of your effort and, and you don't have anything left to do what God actually called us to do, it's time to rethink what your local church is doing and how it's doing it. Now, this brings me to my final lie for today. Lie number three, the church's mission is the pastor's job. That is my favorite lie. Here's the thing. The sanctuary nature of God means God wants to be with people. Sin separates us from him, but God initiates a plan to bring us back to himself. This is the sanctuary. And by the way, my dear fellow Adventists, uh, the sanctuary is not the church building. I think maybe it's time we stop calling it that, right? Uh, I mean, sometimes we do it as a metaphor. You know, I suppose you know, that's okay. But don't take that too far. <laughs> Uh, the sanctuary is God's heart in Scripture. It's His relation to humanity. It's His redemptive plan. But here's the cool thing. When we talk about this redemptive plan of God, part of His redemptive plan involves a secret weapon. I bet you didn't know that. That's pretty cool, right? Secret weapon. Like we're about to get 007 here. Part of God's plan to bring people back to Himself and, you know, this whole great controversy it involves a secret weapon. Now, I'm going to share the secret weapon with you. I'm going to quote from Ephesians chapter 3. I'm not reading like every verse. I'm reading a few verses, 3, 5 through 6, and 10 to 11. Um, you can go there and read the whole chapter. I'm just going to highlight the main points, um, and then we're going to break it down a little bit. Now, here I'm reading what Paul has written. He says, God himself revealed his mysterious plan to me. There it is. God did not reveal it to previous generations, but now by his spirit, he has revealed it to his holy apostles and prophets. In other words, this has been like on the DL for a long time, but it's, it's, time, it's time to put it on blast. And this is God's plan, Paul says. Both Gentiles and Jews who believe the good news share equally in the riches inherited by God's children. Both are part of the same body and belong to Christ Jesus. Why? Because God likes to be with people and it doesn't matter where people are from, right? You don't have to be Jew. It could be from anywhere in the world. God wants you in his family. Now, Paul continues, God's purpose in all of this, right? God's purpose in his secret plan was to use the church to display his wisdom to all the unseen rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was his eternal plan. Now, I don't know if you caught that, so let me elaborate a little bit. Through the church, God not only reaches out to the people he likes to be with, the Jews and the Gentiles. But through it, God reveals his heart to the entire universe. But here's the crazy thing. God's secret weapon is the church, but the church is not a building and it's not a program. The church is people. But it's more than that. Notice what Paul says about these people 
right? The secret, secret plan, which I hope that's really clear by now that the secret plan that God had, the secret weapon that God has had from the beginning of time to defeat evil is a group of people. But notice what Paul says about these people just a chapter before in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. These are the, this is the church, right? These are the people, the secret weapon. Once you were dead because of your disobedience and your many sins, you used to live in sin, just like the rest of the world, obeying the devil. All of us used to live that way, following the passionate desires and inclinations of our sinful nature. By our very nature, we were subject to God's anger, just like everyone else. In other words, God's secret plan to defeat evil, dwell with humanity, and glorify himself is a group of people, the church, but not just people, broken people. So God bypassed perfect and loyal angels and instead has chosen from history past that his secret weapon would be broken, messed up people. And what does he do with this group of broken, messed up people? Peter hits the nail on the head in, in 1 Peter 2, 5 through 9, when he writes this, um, but you are a chosen generation a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. God's secret weapon is that he would take broken people and that those people would be priests, a kingdom of priests, and that through them he would reveal his heart to the world and beyond. This means... You are a priest, whether or not you're a pastor. All of you are priests. And what is a priest's job? A priest's job is to help bring the sinner into contact with God. Like, it's that simple. It's about bringing the two together. And that's you and that's me. All of us priests because God has called all of us to be a part of his dwelling with humanity because God likes to be with people. The mission of the church doesn't belong to the pastor. It belongs to people, broken people, saved by grace and called to be priests on the earth. Now, most church members today have no idea what church is in the Bible, and we can see the effects all around us. Adventist churches are dying, splitting, barely functioning. For a while, I used to believe the problem was laziness, but lately I've been thinking that maybe the problem begins with the fact that most of us have no idea what church really is. We think it's a building with a program and its own full-time CEO pastor who does it all so that we can sit back and enjoy the show. But this is not church. You don't find that anywhere in the New Testament. Instead, the Bible declares that you are the church, that the center of church is not a program but people, and that each of us broken, messed up people, liars and thieves, gossips and narcissists, addicts and slaves, have been reclaimed by God's grace and called to be a kingdom of priests with one mission— to bring sinners into contact with God because God likes to be with people. Now, what in the world would happen in our local churches if every single one of us embraced this identity, this radical identity of what church really is? I don't know. But this identity that God gives the church in Scripture is so radical that I can't help but believe that if we really embraced it, 
radical things would happen among us too. All right, guys, that's all I've got time for today. The three big lies most Adventists believe about church. Now, if you haven't had a chance, make sure you head over to the storychurchproject.com. Get yourself a free copy of the free ebook, How to Study the Bible with Postmoderns. You're absolutely going to love that book. It'll rock your world. And check out all the other resources. I will catch you guys next week. Until then, I pray that you would commit yourself to redesigning Adventism for the mission God has given us. Take care and God bless. (laughs) 